My guest today is Ben Cole, also known as the Baptist blogger, uh, the infamous. Ben and I have actually known each other since I was about 14 or 15 years old from, uh, yeah, so I was living in Wake Forest and Ben, you were attending uh, Southeastern Seminary. That's right. Um, so Ben was an SBC pastor until 2008. Uh, he worked on, after that, he worked on Capitol Hill for a while on an oversight committee uh, doing investigations for the House of Representatives. He worked in industry. Uh, and in 2015, Ben started a crisis management firm called Longview Strategies. We're here to talk about the SBC, such as it is. Welcome. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. I mean, this, we're already starting off. It sounds like fresh air on NPR. Well, it's good to see you. <laughs> yeah. So there are three views broadly on a spectrum. There, there, there are three views about the current conservative resurgence. Um, so on one end of the spectrum, you have those who think that this conservative resurgence, I'm using air quotes, this conservative oh. resurgence uh, is the same as the conservative resurgence of 30 years ago in that there are theological liberals who are taking over the convention and they need to be stopped. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you have those who say that the current resurgence is the same as the conservative resurgence 30 years ago in that there aren't any liberals now and there weren't any then, right? Um, and then somewhere in the middle, you've got the view that what's going on now with the conservative Baptist network and founders and so on is very different from what the conservative resurgence 30 years ago in that 30 years ago, there were actually theological liberals around who needed to be stopped. And now it's all just purely manufactured. Uh, so what, what's your assessment of those views? Uh, where, where might you find yourself on the spectrum? Uh, well, Scott, first of all, I want to say I appreciate what you're doing with this podcast and, and with your engagement of these issues. I think it's been very helpful for someone, for those of us that are still uh, living in and, and trying to be effective um, inside the Southern Baptist Convention, to have the perspective of someone who knows it very well. It's in your DNA. You grew up in this world uh, and, and yet studied outside uh, of those contexts. And, and I think that you've have been able to help focus the thinking for a lot of, of faithful Southern Baptists who, who are benefited by the perspective and the analysis that you've offered. So uh, to begin with, I just want to say I really appreciate the work that you've done, how, how little I would have known, you know, 20 years ago uh, that the paint crew guy at the seminary where I was attending would, you know, be a professor of philosophy at a Catholic uh, institution. So uh, it's great to see you again and that our, our sort of interests have, have aligned once more. Um, I don't know that, that the categories you established are quite that simple. Um, in fact, they, they might actually be more simple. Here, here, here I think is the fundamental question that, that Southern Baptists that are still committed to the convention are trying to ask. And that is, was there ever really a conservative resurgence? What was it? Uh, you know, you've got the, the chief architects of this so-called conservative resurgence, one of whom has been a, pro, a prolonged uh, 
civil lawsuits regarding sex abuse of, of, of males. Uh, you have another who uh, is just a dastardly fella. I mean, just any way you cut it. Uh, there's not been a murder weapon in the last 40 years of Southern Baptist life that doesn't have Paige Patterson's fingerprints on it. So, so that's sort of like, what was this? And are these, are, is this really what it was all about? In other words, have, have the so-called conservatives now proven the ousted liberals right, that it really wasn't a conservative resurgence, it was a fundamentalist takeover, that it really wasn't a theological renaissance as much as it was a power grab. Um, and depending on what side you've been on, winners or losers from year to year for the past 40 years, uh, you have a different perspective on that. I, I think here is really what's happening. Baptists have always been a contrary bunch of people. Uh, they, are, they are by nature dissenters. It's in their DNA to disagree and to disagree sometimes violently. Uh, over some of the most minute points of theology inside uh, the, the Christian faith. So Baptists, are, they, they like to splinter. They like to fight. The problem is, and this is what's bringing it all to a head right now, is that trends of the downward um, numbers of Southern Baptist participation, churches, that are losing members. And, and now the convention as a whole is losing specifically prominent women uh, who are distancing themselves from the convention, men uh, who have been, uh, like men like Russ Moore, who have carried water for the leaders of, of the conservative movement in the SBC. They're now leaving. Uh, you've got, you've got African-American ethnic minority pastors that are leaving. So how is it, has all this fighting that previously you still saw baptisms growing and churches, you know, growing and giving going up. And there was this promise at the beginning of this so-called conservative resurgence in 1979, that if we can just get our, if we get our ships all back in line in terms of theological orthodoxy, uh, then we're going to see evangelism and revival and another great awakening in our chain. It would just, it's going to explode. And the exact opposite has happened, that Southern Baptists now are contracting organically for a whole host of reasons. But now it seems that there is a purge. There is an, an agenda to purge the convention of, of the other, the people with whom we disagree. And so there's a sense in which Southern Baptists have ceased being Southern, and they may also have ceased to be Baptist. And I think that's some of the internal angst that's going on. Cease to be Southern in the sense that church planting has happened outside of the SEC conference, uh, outside of Georgia, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Tennessee, North and South Carolina. Uh, it, Southern Baptist churches are, have expanded beyond those sort of regional borders. And in doing so have broken out of the cultural um, isolation that Southern Baptists enjoyed that enabled their growth into being more culturally uh, expansive, more geographically expansive. And at the, at the same time, they've ceased to be Baptists in the sense that there is no longer any toleration for dissent, that there is no room for dissonant voices, that there is no place 
for people under the tent who, we're not talking about disavowing the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection, the so-called fundamentals of the faith. We're talking about these, these minor little details that used to fall under the umbrella of local church autonomy that now are litmus tests of orthodoxy. And there is a, there's not just a contracting going on, but there is a fracturing going on. And, and it's been predicted. It's not like we should all be taken by surprise. Uh, Bill Leonard, uh, a, a moderate slash liberal Baptist historian, uh, identified this. Barry Hankins, who was a professor of mine at Baylor, in some of the work he's done, has said, look, this is coming. Uh, it's a matter of time. Sociological analysis, astute students of history, uh, should not be surprised at what's going on in the SBC uh, right now. And in fact, some of what's going on has been uh, a huge part of my engagement in Southern Baptist life. I, in 2005 and six, started utilizing, at that point, the only form of social media we had, which was blogging, uh, used blogging to, to sort of steer the convention in directions that I thought it needed to go. And, and time will tell, I guess, whether or not I was successful. But the fact that there are more and more voices engaging in social media, uh, and that's almost intolerable to, to the protectionists, uh, the, the people that are going around, and the, I call them the, the white glove uh, Southern Baptists. So the people that come into your church and and they rake their little white dainty glove across the pews just to see what kind of, of dirt you may have. It's, it's the people that are in fruit inspectors. Um, and that's what you have going on with, with, I think, this organization that was founded in, in Paige Patterson's home and is being driven a large part by the people who feel left out now that he's not holding the reins of power. And I think that some of the some of the folks, many of whom I went to seminary with, Brad Jerkovich uh, is a guy who's, who's uh, a self-appointed leader, I guess, of the Conservative Baptist Network. Uh, you have some others that I, I went to school with, J.D. Greer. We were in seminary together. All of us kind of were there under Patterson at the same time. What, what you see is some of the guys like J.D. Greer, who went out, led a church, grew a church uh, on their own right, uh, have risen to positions of leadership. And then you have other folks like uh, the Brad Jerkoviches of the world who, to some degree, they have the elder brother syndrome. They, they were promised the kingdom. They, they did all their, their uh, due diligence. They carried the buckets of water, and, and they haven't gotten the roles and the positions of power in the trusteeships that I think they thought they were promised. And so some of it that's going on here is just pure petty ambition that that has been thwarted because Paige Patterson's no longer uh, controlling who gets in and who's out of the SBC. So that's sort of a, a, a large, I've sort of cut a large swath across a number of issues, but at the, at the, ba at the base level, here's the problem. Uh, Southern Baptists are increasingly irrelevant in a culture where they believed in the eighties, they were culturally dominant. Uh, the rise of the religious right, the Reagan administration, uh, you, they're, they're increasingly irrelevant and powerless. And, and I think increasingly uh, have lost a prophetic voice. And some of what's happened 
in the conflict in the SBC is the SBC was always great at being prophetic against the culture, right? We're going to preach against those people out there who aren't like us. They're the sinners. They're the, the liberals. They're the, the postmodern mindset, you know, wh whatever bogeyman it is. And basically all you have to do is track over 30 years of Al Mohler writings and find out who the enemy was, right? You want to know who the enemy is? Just go read Al Mohler's blog at any given year and you'll find out who the identified enemy is. What's happened is, is some of the prophetic voices in Southern Baptist life stopped looking outside the windows and started looking inside the living room and in the family room and started to turn that pro prophetic voice inside and say, wait a minute, maybe judgment should begin at the house of God. Maybe the prophet's job is to point out the sins of his own people. Maybe a shepherd's job is to tend to the sickness in his own flock and not his neighbor's flock. And so that in itself has created a, um, not I wouldn't say a crisis, but it, it is conflict. Uh, and it's, come on, this is as old as, uh, as, old as Israel, right? Uh, prophets are without honor, right? <laughs> Especially in their own hometown. So uh, the prophetic witness that, is, that has happened and is happening in Southern Baptist life, the, the, the generation, the conservative resurgence generation that actually believes the Bible and takes it seriously and has said, yeah, this is, the Bible is authoritative, it is sufficient, and we believe what it says has started to say, wait a minute, some of the things that we've been told the Bible says, it doesn't actually say. I mean, I remember in 2006, the uh, issue of, of alcohol came up and, and it was like, people couldn't believe it. There was a debate on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention that we would dare say that, that drinking is a sin. Well, the Bible doesn't say drinking is a sin, but Southern Baptists believe it's a sin. So there, there's a whole host of things that for years, Southern Baptists have, have sort of declared as forbidden that the Bible doesn't say it's forbidden. And the generation that arose that actually believes the Bible and wants to know what it actually says is, is rejecting the extra biblical um, parameters that have been established. At the same time, uh, you have others that are trying to narrow the, narrow the tent. So um, that's sort of just free thought of, of stuff rattling around in my uh, brain, but I'm not a the professional theologian or philosopher, and I'm certainly not a historian. Um, I just, that's just the way I kind of am trying to process things from where I sit. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've, for a long time, I've been bewildered at this dynamic where you've got people of influence in the SBC and elsewhere, but particularly in the SBC, who um, stand up in church and, uh, stomp around and shout and get all red in the face about those people out there. None, none of whom care anything about what they have to say. Right. Um, and, and they'll do anything but address what's, what's actually going on with the people in front of them. Right. right. Um, and, and for that matter, um, what you say about taking scripture seriously. Uh, I mean, like I, I'll have, some you know people on social media say say you know say things about oh well you just don't take the bible seriously or you're not a, i mean like i'm 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 an inheritance i mean like and i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna keep saying i'm an an inheritance because i am and and because uh i think it annoys some of these people 
Yeah, um, but your inheritance properly defined, right? I don't right. believe I don't believe my you know CSB Bible is an error. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But but it, but it's my high view of scripture actually that brought me to my views about justice and the importance of uh, rectifying uh, injustices. And, and it's my view of scripture that brought me around uh, to understanding that God takes institutional injustice very seriously. Yeah, the, the folks who sort of have the uh, conservative mantle, I guess there are certain interpretations of certain parts of the Bible that they take very seriously. And aside from that, I mean, who knows? And I, th and I think there's frustration among some of the folks you mentioned. I'm, I'm sort of touching on a few things that came to mind as you were talking. I think there's some frustration among those who have positioned themselves for the mantle of power uh, that they thought they did all the right things and they appeased all the right people. And while they were in the process of doing that, the ground kind of shifted. Right. Uh, and so uh, the it turns out the people that they appeased are, are no longer in a position to pass the mantle. Yeah. And they seem to be very frustrated by that. I, re I read this book uh, maybe two years ago. Uh, it's by this author, Angie Maxwell. You may have seen it. It's called The Long Southern Strategy, uh, How Chasing White Voters in the South Changed American Politics. And maybe the first chapter, maybe the second chapter, but early in the book, uh, Maxwell sort of asked this question about white leaders in the South and their views on blacks juxtaposed with the views on women. And, there, and the author sort of says, look, the, the, um, the concern among sort of the dominant Southern white male culture uh, during the civil rights movement was that we had to protect our women, right, from blacks. Um, now, I don't know that I, I don't agree with all of that thesis because, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to oversimplify things like that. But when I read that, sort of that how the dominant white Southern culture felt that women were, were weak, they were vulnerable and, and they, should be, they should be protected. And we had a responsibility to, through our institutions to protect women from, from the, the certain violence that was to happen if we allowed Blacks to share our counter spaces and our and our water fountains and our buses, etc. That so Angie goes into this and she builds this thesis that that these two things were working in tandem together. We have to protect our white women, and we have in order to do that, we've got to make sure that we don't allow blacks to have equality. That's sort of what's going on in the chapter. And as I read that, I, I really just thought. What's happening in the SBC right now, it's interesting that, that the people that are feeling the full force of really of the, some of the vitriol are blacks and women. Uh, women uh, in the SBC, not all, but, but some of the prominent leaders in the SBC, uh, they're, they're saying, no, we will no longer be silent. Uh, we're not asking to preach. We're not asking to be to be ordained. Uh, now in some churches that, you know, that is happening. Rick Warren uh, ordained a female minister, a couple of female ministers, I think a couple of weeks ago. That's a local, his local church issue. And, and 
you know what? The convention, Southern Baptist Convention didn't have anything to say about that. Uh, and at the same time, you've got black ministers who are saying, no more. We can't be a part of, of this anymore. We got to get out. Um, why is it that what's going on in the SBC right now is particularly distasteful to ethnic minorities and women? And I don't know anybody that's answering that question either convincingly or honestly. Uh, you've got on the one hand folks that are saying, well, the, these women like Beth Moore that are leaving, well, they've been gone from us a long time anyway. They've gone huh. out from us because they are not of us. And as, as for these black ministers, well, you know, they're just CRT folks. They're not, they don't really believe the, and preach the Bible. They, they've studied under James Cone, you know, and so they're not of us either. And the nature of, and, and by the way, Baptists have always had these, these groups uh, inside their tent who were sectarian, right? We're going we're gonna to push everybody out that's not like us, and we're going to form the perfect little community of perfect little people who worship God in purity, and it'll be the undiluted, untainted truth, and we've got it, right? It's sort of, it, that is the fundamentalist impulse. But that that has been a diminishing uh, number of people over the last, I would say over the last 30 years of Southern Baptist life until recent days. And now the group that has been increasingly marginalized over the last 10 years, the sort of ultra sectarian, hyper fundamentalist. Uh, and in many cases, uh, they are the least educated. I mean, this is just the nature of fundamentalism. You've, you've got the folks that they don't have um, uh, they don't have any any impressive academic credentials. And I say that, I mean, you've got a, a PhD and I've only done PhD work. I don't claim to be an academician, but you've got, you know, for instance, you got a guy running for uh, convention president that never attended seminary. Well, I'm not saying you have to attend seminary to be convention president, but fundamentalism travels along the same lines in history with anti-intellectualism uh, uh, separationism, and and I even I even think uh, racial racial segregation. You do not have to draw a line very far from J. Frank Norris to the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, that's uh, Dr. O. S. Hawkins, who is the president of Guidestone Financial Resources, the retirement fund of the Southern Baptist Convention, is doing some excellent research right now on the history of J. Frank Norris and the influence of fundamentalism in 20th century Southern Baptist life. And, and Norris, uh, Norris had no problem with the Klan uh, for a long time. In fact, uh, George um, Truitt, you know, the grand old man, the, the, the pastor for a long time. So he had some 27 deacons in his church, I think, that were, that were just card-carrying members of the most powerful Klan organization in the world at the time in, in Dallas, Texas. So Southern Baptists have always had this problem with race. Uh, well, back to its founding. It's founding, yeah. I mean, come on, it's in the DNA. Uh, I've, I've told some people before, just to float the balloon to see what folks think. I really think the SBC needs to be born again. It was born in sin, and I think it needs to be born again. There's an argument to be made that we ought to just absolutely abolish the SBC as it could, as it currently exists and refound it. You could do that in one meeting of the convention.
just say, we are not those people anymore. We are new. We're a new creature, right, in Christ. We are putting away the old and all things are becoming new. That, that would be radical. It would be interesting to see if Southern Baptists believe that, that salvation for an institution may occur the same way that it does for an individual. And I think some of what's happening with the institutional justice, the opposition to sort of to justice as you've written about it, as others are talking about it, is the thought that, that God doesn't work with institutions the same way he works with individuals, right? Uh, that God only works with individuals and, and justice only happens on an individual basis and it doesn't happen institutionally. And I think that redemption and salvation may actually not just occur on an individual basis. They may occur in, institutionally. In fact, I'm willing to go further than that and say that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ, that everything is going to be born again. Um, Anyway, I, I'll start preaching if I'm not careful, and I have to remind myself that I, that I aren't one anymore. But, but I, I wonder how radical that would that be if we said the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't exist anymore. That 1845 denomination that believed that blacks and women did not, women couldn't be messengers of the convention, blacks deserved to be slaves. Not even that. You don't have to go to 1845. Let's, let's, go, let's go later than that. Let's go to some of the convention of the, 18, of the 1960s. Let, let's go even into the 1970s when churches were segregated. We're talking 50, the I was born in 76. There were churches when I was born that were still officially segregated. That's just unbelievable. So what would it be like if we said, you know what, forget that. It's time to be born again. Let's refound the whole thing with full inclusivity of all people, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race. Um, that that might actually capture the world's attention and say, these people don't just preach something, they actually believe it. But you're gonna have the pushback and says, oh no, salvation only happens on an individual basis. Redemption is only an individual thing. It is not corporate, it's not institutional. And some of that may be where the rub is. Because there are those in the convention for whom morality is tethered to individual piety. They, 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 <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they not. Until we find out that it's not. <laughs> that they weren't actually pious and they weren't actually moral. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I think that I think the fundamental divide, I, I've been thinking about this a lot for the last few years. The divide comes down to those who see morality fundamentally as a matter of hierarchy and submission to authority. I mean, they're obsessed with authority and submission. So much yeah. so that they have imported it into the Trinity and mangled the doctrine of the Trinity in a rather ham-handed effort to support their views about patriarchy. Mm. And they actually can't imagine any kind of morality apart from authority and submission. Like they think that's just what morality is. And their takeaway even from the gospel is that Christ submitted to God's, uh, the Father's will, you know, even even up to death on a cross, and that that submission is the aspect of the gospel narrative that's most worthy of emulation. Mm. Not the self-sacrifice, right? I mean, uh, not that they would deny that that's a thing, but th th that's, that's not the thing that Christians should be emulating, right? The, this, it's, it's submission 
It's all about social. And then opposed to that group, you've got folks who say, uh, no, God cares about justice. And justice has this leveling effect on these hierarchies. And so, I mean, that's the, that's the way that I've come to understand how it is that someone might possibly think that justice is opposed to Christianity, is that they, they see morality as a matter of hierarchy. And justice, of course, has this uh, leveling effect on those kinds of hierarchies. And that's where you see the misogyny and the racism come together, right? Um, there's, there's always got to be some group of people that God uh, uh, ordained to be um, subjugated to the privileged well, group. I, I, in fairness, I don't know that people would say subjugated as much as it means. Well, they wouldn't, but I do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, certainly, they would. Yeah. Right. I, let me let me touch on something you said because it's this is this idea of sort of Christ's death as an act of submission versus self sacrifice. Uh, I, I always go back to Genesis twenty two when I think about this because Jewish tradition uh, has this. It's a beautiful tradition about the, the relationship between Abraham and Isaac going to the Mount of Sacrifice. And yep, that's yep, that's it. They take totally the wrong lesson away from the binding visor. Yeah. Yeah, but go ahead. But that is but that it there is there's almost this both and thing. There's a sense in which Isaac did, I mean, he carried the wood on his back, right? He said, Father, where are we going? He says, I don't know. We'll know when we get there, and we're gonna make a sacrifice. And Isaac goes. And there's no indication in Genesis 22 of any resistance by Isaac to Abraham drawing the knife, binding him and drawing the knife, right? That he, that he, he willingly went and submitted. I just think there's too much going on in those narratives of sacrifice, um, atonement, and redemption to fit into our pretty little packages. And, and one of my greatest problems. I would say problem. One of my greatest complaints, griefs, uh, grievances about what Southern Baptists have become post-1998 when Dorothy Patterson uh, spoon-fed us uh, her submission theology in the 98 statement. But one of my greatest concerns is that if you go to the Baptist Faith and Message, there's three times as many words spent on the relationship of a of a husband to a wife, as there is on the Trinity. Uh, it's it it's so off that we have to spend more words defining uh, the family uh, than we do the atonement. Right? Why is that? What? And then you have subsequent sort of like these these follow-on statements, like um, the Cal yeah the Danvers statement, the Nashville statement, which is just I'll have, I don't have enough time to talk about that one or, or basically anything Denny Burke writes. Um, I've, just, I've just stopped reading him, not just because he's blocked me as he has you, um, but it's, I think it's just silly. It's a waste of time. But the folks for whom submission is, is the meta narrative, I, I, think, I think, honestly, I, agree, I, I feel sorry for them because I think they're missing out of some of the beauty of salvation. And I think I think they're missing out on some of the glory of the gospel and that we are we are called to be brothers. I mean, Jesus says, you're my friends. We are called to be brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. I, and you read the book of Acts and there's just there's just nothing of this concern. The fight 
the, the fight, you know, in, in Jerusalem uh, was over circumcision, right? What, what are we going to do? There were early church squabbles, uh, but they were trying to graft whole, whole religious systems together and, and make sense, you know, mere years after Jesus has ascended of what does this mean that we are to become one in Christ? And get this, they were able to do that, Right? Yeah. And it wasn't by one group submitting to another, but we've just, we've just so turned this theology of submission into, into the, the hermeneutic. It is, it is the little orphan Annie decoder pin to understand the scripture. And, and if they you say as much, they admit that. Oh yeah. And it, it is, um, a, it's really, it, it really is sad. It's sad, and this is one of my this is one of my concerns. I've I've told this to uh, Dr. Moeller uh, personally that Southern Seminary contend, continues to underwrite the Council on Biblical Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that 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 organization that could not exist without without the cover that Al Moeller gives them and the money that he basically enables them to continue to receive they wouldn't they wouldn't exist without Wayne Grudem's money and Al Mohler's campus continue to to exist I just don't get it I, I think they ought to stand or live I think they ought to live or die on their own two feet they ought not be getting Southern Baptist dollars they ought not be getting Southern Baptist subsidies and Moeller because they don't me, answer to the SBC no they don't and and Moeller promised me personally two years ago that that CBMW would be would be paying rent at Southern Seminary before the year was out. Well, that still hasn't happened. And um, you know, Southern Baptist ought not be subsidizing that. I, I just that that whole that whole thing. And, and by the way, while I'm thinking about it, let me jump back to this. All the voices that say about Beth Moore and Russ Moore, they've gone out from us because they were not of us. You don't see anybody that I've read, maybe they do it, and, I've, and I don't follow them on Twitter, maybe it's happened, who's saying about Owen Strayan, who, who's now left the Southern Baptist Convention, they've gone out from us because they are not of us. There, there's not that same sort of gleeful, I didn't even, I didn't even rejoice uh, that, that Owen left. I, 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 think, he, I think he has found uh, an institution uh, that, is commensurate with his own stature, and I, I, I just, I, I, I'm thankful for him that he's that he's found a place of service. There, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a side story. I think I may have told you before. A um, couple of years ago, I was at Midwestern's campus, and just next door to Midwestern's campus is a Petco, a pet store. And I went into the pet store and I bought a little Chihuahua muzzle, and I took it over to the Midwestern campus and I wrapped it up in in a tissue paper in a gift bag. And I left it on Owen Strayan's desk with a note that said, the kingdom of God doesn't need ankle biters. And uh, in as much as you feel called to be an ankle biter, you need to know I'm called to kick ankle biters. So the next time you bite ankles, don't be surprised when you feel my boot. I suggest you leave this little uh, chihuahua muzzle on your desk. And before you start writing things, ask yourself, uh, am I being a chihuahua in the kingdom of God? So, so, to, so to the binding of Isaac. Just to be perfectly clear, clear oh, yeah. when I say when I said they take totally the wrong lesson uh, 
away from it. The they I was referring to there was these authority and submission guys, certainly not the Jewish scholars <laughs> whose tradition yeah. it is, right? Um, uh, uh, yeah, but, okay. yeah, so, so but, 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 but even as far as um, Abraham goes, right? We, the, the way that it's narrated is, well, Abraham did this really hard thing that he didn't want to do because God told him to do it. And even though he didn't want to do it, he did it anyway, which is all true, right? But not the point of the story, right? Yeah, I mean, what did Kierkegaard say about the whole story? Kierkegaard says, who can understand this, right? Who can, who can fathom what was going on in Abraham's mind? Of course, Kierkegaard was liberal, so we would expect him to not understand. Go ahead. But, but a big part of what's going on there is that Abraham is working out his faith, yeah. right? And what I think a lot of Southern Baptists have done is to take the most difficult part of morality and completely... Uh, they just lopped it off. I mean, there's no, there's no deliberation, right? Uh, there's no, it, it's all, it's all formulaic, right? Um, and uh, the formula is handed down uh, from men whose job it is to tell us what the Bible means. Like, uh, you know, it's the plain reading, but it's the plain reading according to, you know, whoever happens to uh, occupy the seat of power at the moment. Sure. No, that I, I, I use insert the name wherever, but I, I find myself saying this all the time. No man has seen God at any time except Denny Burke, and he has explained him to us. Right. No man has seen God at any time except Owen Strayan, and he is explaining God to us. Uh, the. And the fact that these are no luminaries, right, <laughs> these are not the greatest, these are not the greatest minds Southern Baptists have ever produced. These are not the greatest theologians to have arisen. Uh, and yet somehow, somehow it's just, it's caught, it's caught uh, the tailwinds of a, of a group within the SBC who are, who are militant, determined, and we shouldn't be surprised because those groups have always been there. The question for Southern Baptist now is, and it must be in every generation, is that who we are as a people? Or are they a part of us? There's a difference in those two responses, right? They are of us, or are we of them? I'm willing to say that the that the Denny Burke, Owen Strayan, um, Mike Stone, Paige Patterson uh, group that that they are of us. They are Southern Baptists. They are they are family. Right. But but they ain't controlling the family. And that's that's some of the problem that's going on. And I don't think they want me to be a part of them. Right. Uh, and so I, I told uh, I told a reporter the other day in an interview, I said the SBC, the annual meeting, of the convention has always been. I keep jumping back to this because it's in my mind. But the annual meeting has always been part family reunion and part family feud. Right now, it seems like more family feud than family reunion, but we've got to settle these things. Like, we're about to have a family meeting, and we're either going to walk away with some resolution or we're going to walk away. And that's, and that's okay. That's okay. I, I talked to a denominational executive uh, this morning on the phone, and I said, you know what? It, it, God doesn't have any uh, reason to, to think that, to prop up the Southern Baptist Convention in perpetuity. And it may be that we're we are going to be the last generation of people that are Southern Baptist, and and that's okay. Uh, 
God has always had a people and there will always be a church. And, you know, I, I'm thankful that where I go on Sundays and with uh, my pastor, who is a committed Southern Baptist, that this stuff doesn't come up in our local church. And most local churches aren't dealing with this. But this annual meeting, this family reunion that becomes a family feud is where these things are being hashed out. I think, I think we were on to something uh, there that is significant. The, the theologians, and I, I use that term loosely because some of them can't be called theologians in, in any context, but the theologians who have got the Trinity figured out and then, and then take their contrived concept of the Trinity and force that pattern into every other relationship of life. I, I've met them before. I've sat in their conferences. It was the Bill Gothard conferences. It wasn't the Southern Baptist Convention. And that sort of submission authority model creates a context, a climate where abuse becomes not just acceptable, but normative. And Southern Baptists have always been a people who, who were resistant to creedalism, resistant to centralized authority, to the point of, I mean, it wasn't just anti-papism, right? It was just their reading of scripture was that Jesus founded the local church and there is no hierarchy outside of the local church. Um, and, and I even am, am willing to accept hierarchy. There are pastors, there are teachers, there are people that are leaders in the church, there are leaders in government. Right? I understand authority structures. Um, you know, we're not anarchists here. Yeah, I'm, yeah. This, and, and so I think you're exactly right. That's the point. So I refuse to be brushed with, painted with the brush of anarchy. Uh, or any other thing else that 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 I uh, would would be painted uh, by the people who disagree with me, I, I recognize that there are there are structures that God has put into this world. I mean, you read you read the Genesis passage, and I understand it. He gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. Like, okay, I get that. You know, my dog doesn't get to tell me what to do. I, but but Scott, you're not a dog, right? My fellow human being created in the image of God, male or female, isn't a dog, white or black. They're, they're not a, it's not a lesser expression of the, of the person, of the image of God. And so what is interesting to hear is the, the contrivances through which these Gothardite, and I say, I say Gothardite, Pattersonian, submission authority theologians it's interesting to try to listen to them explain equality like i want them have you ever heard that crew explain ontological equality without caveats no no, no they don't it's, do it's it. always, it i always get the sense that i'm listening to like games with words or something i mean it's yeah. it's incoherent and it's and quite frankly, the, the people in the pews, they don't buy it either. Some of the constructs for submission and authority that are being advanced in certain sectors of Southern Baptist life would not live 30 seconds in the average Southern Baptist church. Uh, the average, you would stand up in the pulpit and preach it before 60% of your congregation would be out the door. 
some of the guys that are advancing these theologies of submission, uh, as they're expressing them, have such a thin ecclesia, ecclesiological experience. They are not churchmen. They have not pastored. They have not, they have not led congregations of the faithful. And, and I am, as a Baptist, I'm a little reticent uh, to pay much attention to a theologian who has minimal local church experience and involvement. And I'm not talking about you, you pop up behind the pulpit in churches Sunday after Sunday all over the country and give your little sermon and then leave. I'm talking about the day in, day out, hard work being a pastor. This is some of the way that Mike Stone is appealing to folks. Uh, he's saying some of the right things and many things I agree with him about. Uh, that the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention is the local church. Um, but I think in the same time, we have constructed this, this um, system of pastoral authority that touches on the very problems that we're addressing in terms of every other line of authority. There was this resolution that came out on the priesthood of the believer. I think it was in 87 or 88. I don't have to go back and look at my notes. But it created a huge conflict, almost like resolution number nine uh, from 2019's convention on critical race theory. There's this resolution on the priesthood of the believer. And let me let me just pull it up here. OK, so, yeah, it was June 1988. In June of 88, uh, the convention met in San Antonio and there was a resolution that was offered on the priesthood of the believer, which, you know, anybody that grew up Baptist knows that the priesthood of the believer. We don't really know what it means, but it, we're supposed to, we agree with it. Right. Uh, it's like an errancy. I can't really define it, but I know I believe it. Um, so there was this, there was this uh, part of the resolved, of the, one of the resolved paragraphs that says this, be it resolved that the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer in no way contradicts the biblical understanding of the role, responsibility, and authority of the pastor, which is seen in the command of the local church, in Hebrews 13, which says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Mm. Be it finally resolved, we affirm the truth that elders or pastors are called of God to lead the local church, Acts 20 to 28, 2028. So that resolution was voted on, approved. The next year in 89, all hell broke loose because everyone wanted to rescind that resolution. The moderates said, wait a minute, we've just established pastoral authority is something that Baptists don't believe. We believe that in congregational authority, right, that the congregation gets to choose who the pastor is. And because that, the congregation has a higher level of authority than the pastor. So Hebrews may say, obey your leaders, but if you get to choose your leader, then it's voluntary submission, right? Uh, we elect you you're our leader, but go to the average Southern Baptist church and say, have you ever fired your pastor? And, you know, 80% of them will go, oh yeah, we fired the last three of them. So Southern Baptists have been really good at talking about pastoral authority, but not really good at practicing what they preach. And I think the same thing goes true for all these other layers of authority. I'll just, I'll just say this, go to the couple that has done more than any other couple in Southern Baptist life to talk about submission and authority and a wife submitting to her husband, go to Paige and Dorothy Patterson and tell me that's a marriage you want to replicate throughout the convention. And everyone would just wince. No, no, no way do we want that. So some of the people that are articulating these models for authority and submission, 
They are the worst examples of it, they themselves. And, and it's just part of the conflict we're having right now is that people are starting to say that with, without hiding that, that they see the conflict, the inherent contradiction. In fact, I'll take it further. The, the obvious naked hypocrisy in establishing this, this authority hermeneutic and not actually uh, modeling it in any convincing way. Yeah. Well, because it's it because it's um, what you end up with. Although these folks like to talk about order, uh, order is coded for uh, what whatever the authoritarians' preference are, preferences are right. And so um, that order ends up looking a lot like chaos. Yeah. So right? if you have if you have this authority submission model, and you say that okay. Uh, the, the church is to submit to the pastor and the wife is to submit to the husband. Well, then you, if that becomes your, that is your controlling hermeneutic, then what happens when the husband becomes abusive to the wife? Well, she must submit. And so you have Paige Patterson telling a woman who was beaten by her husband to go back and to pray for him. And when he starts beating her harder, you know, there's that audio recording that's horrifying to people to listen to. Wait a minute. You're telling an abused wife to go back and submit herself to her abuser? Absolutely not. You have authoritative pastors who have abused their authority, whether they themselves were, were sex offenders or, or if it's more subtle abuse, emotional abuse uh, that happens in, in some congregations. What do you say when that abuse happens? You go, oh, no, 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 congregation, don't deal with your abusive pastor. He is the authority, right? Or you have an abusive seminary president who abuses the seminary's finances, who abuses the entire convention's polity, who abuses every, every, everything in his life. And then finally, the trustees go, no, we can't have this abuse anymore. And you've got a whole group that comes against, oh, no, they did wrong. See, they should have they should have submitted to his authority uh, because he was the leader. I mean, it's just it just becomes it becomes mind numbingly absurd to take the hermeneutic of submission and authority to apply it to every relationship in life. And to think that. And, and, and to, to press it to its logical conclusion in every context. No one wants to live in that world. No one wants to attend that church. No one wants to be a part of that convention. No one wants to be in that marriage. No one wants to be the child of that parent. No one wants to be the employee to that employer. No one wants to be the person on the side of the road stopped by that police officer. Like the world they construct is no world I want to live in. And by the way, if I read, if I read the scripture text about the eschaton correctly, that ain't what heaven's like either. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in or equipped to debate the finer points of the Baptist tradition with respect to local church autonomy. But I will say this. It seems like an absurd proposition to me that the convention should be exercising some kind of central oversight with respect to whether a given church allows a woman to address the church from the pulpit on a Sunday. Not, 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 not an ordained pastor, right? Uh, 
but that the denomination should exercise central oversight of that issue, and yet uh, can't even so much as keep a list, a central list of documented sexual predators, right? Oh because yeah, there's, that's a matter of local church autonomy. And what you see here is that everything is framed in a way, this is the order, right? The order that they want is the order that uh, leads to them having all of the authority and, and submission for everyone else, whatever that means. A world defined by the construct of authority and submission that is being proffered in some sec sectors of Southern Baptist life ends up with George Floyd. You end up with authority and submission. And folks would reject that and say, oh no, submission can only be voluntary, right? It is until it isn't. Uh, I understand some people might find it controversial. They shouldn't. It's, a, that's a, it's law and order without justice. Yeah. yeah, you know, here's the thing. Let's, let's suppose for a moment that the authority submission model for, for the created order is true. Let's assume it is. I'm interested in hearing the people who are articulating that explain to me their concept of abuse of authority. And they don't do that. All they say uh, is that authority and submission is the answer to abuse. Right. Yeah. Right. More of it. But how do you deal? How do you do? And they have an answer to how to deal with a, a lack of submission. Right. You ostracize, you condemn, you shame, you paint a scarlet letter on. Right. That's what you do with the one who fails to submit, shame, ostracize, you scourge, whatever, whatever, put them in the stocks. But I, I love to see these authority submission folks for whom that is the that is the narrative. That is the hermeneutic. I, I'd like to see them talk more about abuse of authority because that's really what we're dealing with right now. There folks are saying, wait a minute. We've, we've walked, we've embraced this authority submission thing in marriage. We adopted it in the 98 statement. We, have, we affirmed it again in the 2000 statement of faith. We've affirmed it in the Danvers statement. Okay, we even signed our names on the Nashville statement. But why can't you put together a single sentence that addresses the abuse of authority? And, and what we have in Southern Baptist life right now, and I think this is fueling some of the um, the candidacy of, Rand, of Randy Adams, who's a, an announced candidate from, from the state, the Northwest Convention. He's saying, look, we got a problem with our administrate, with our entity heads, with the powerful elites who are abusing the system for their own benefit. There's a reason that's resonating with the sector, because some folks are just saying, we've had enough. The people that have had authority are, are misusing it. And you know the last thing people who have authority want to talk about? How to deal with abuse, right? Because if you're the one that if you're the one that was in charge and it happened on your watch, the blood's on your hands. So they they don't want to have that conversation. Uh, they don't like that conversation. You will never find a person who's in a position of authority who's real excited about have a having a conversation about the abuse of authority. Uh, you'll never, whereas you will find people who've been living under abuse of authority, writing hymns and singing songs 
and praising and hoping and aspiring for the day when God brings justice to their abusers and they are free. I mean, and interestingly enough, you still attend a, a Baptist church in the South and it's crazy to be sitting in a white chapel full of white people singing Negro spirituals from the slave era about God's deliverance. And they don't even understand the, the irony in that. They don't. They're kicking those people out of the convention. Yeah, it's... And, you know, so, the, and so I, I, I'm, afraid that, I'm, I'm afraid that the church is leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and, and even, you know, even Scott, it just occurred to me while we're talking about this, we're even using categories of they, right? They are like this. I'm willing to say we are like this, right? We have, we have this problem and we have got to address it. And, and I don't- this, this authority and submission streak goes back to, to, to 1845. It was the founding principle. It was, it was, the, uh, it, it was the, the point of integration, right? Uh, the, uh, it was the animating, the animating principle right, is that some people were created to have authority over other people who just have to submit. And, and there are still people in the SBC who just don't know how to exist unless they can exercise, not just exercise authority over other people, but exercise like God-ordained authority over uh, other classes. They see oppression not as a consequence of of human iniquity, but rather as an expression of a divinely established order. No, they see it everywhere. And I, I, I just can't, I can't read the Bible like that. I can't even make myself do it. I, I can't even understand how, how some, how some do. Um, ben, it ends up being nihilism. And I'll tell you why, because since since the only moral order is authority and submission, there's actually no moral order. And what you end up with is this arbitrary kind of divine command theory where God could have commanded the opposite and that would have been the right thing to do because the right thing to do is to submit to whatever God commands. That's, that's the through line, right? And that is in fact nihilism. Yeah, well, and I'll say this, uh, you'd have to unpack that a little more for me to sort of nod knowingly and embrace everything you just said because I, I i ain't that smart scott but but i will say this i don't have any problem saying whatever god commands we ought to do if god commands it we ought to do it whatever god commands we ought to do the problem is is for some for some of the leaders of the last 40 years in southern baptist convention they have not been able to understand the difference between the commands of men and the commands of god and that is as old as the Bible, right? You have substituted the ordinances of men for the commands of God. And that, that is ultimate rebellion against the ultimate authority to say that my law is equal to God's law and should be enforced with the same holy vengeance. And so then what you, if you go, if you go that route, here's what you end up with. You end up with if my law or my ordinance or my command is equal to God's law, God's ordinance, and God's command, then justice is the 
forced obedience to my law. Justice now becomes what I say it is. And one of the things... And that's nihilism, Ben. That was the point I was making. That's the point. Okay, then maybe I'll unpack what you were saying. And I'll I'll tell you, you, you've read Southern Seminary's account of of its history with racism and slavery. I take it. I'm thankful they put it out there. Right. But I, uh, yes, but I will say this, toward the beginning of that document, uh, there's a kind of, I, I think, an effort to soften the blow a bit by referring to, uh, I'll never forget that uses this phrase prevailing orthodoxy, right? That the, that the, the, uh, the folks who founded the Southern Baptist Convention were acting on prevailing orthodoxy, uh, setting aside the, you know, questions about the historical accuracy of that claim. The notion of prevailing orthodoxy is an absurdity because orthodoxy means right belief is yeah. right belief like is it like is it the, yeah, is it, why uh, is it a weather it? pattern is it a cold front that's coming through like what does that even mean well that's what you end up with when you substitute uh, your views for the objective truth that's an interesting point scott why would they not have said the prevailing heterodoxy right 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 yeah. if it if it is evil it is not orthodox no all, all of that said, uh, I, I, used, I used to be able to say with, with straight face, despite all of the conflicts and, and all of the stupidity and foolishness uh, of Southern Baptist, that I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful about its future. Um, I, I don't say that anymore, Scott. Um, I tell you what I am hopeful about. Uh, I'm hopeful about my local church. I'm hopeful about the community of believers that, that of which I'm a part. I'm hopeful about the, the conversations that are happening outside of the narrow little Southern Baptist world. I'm hopeful about the fact that there is an easy migration that's happening in and out of Southern Baptist life. I think that, I don't think there's a problem with people leaving and coming back and, and the breaking down to some degree of those hard denominational walls, that doesn't frighten me like it used to. I've I've sojourned in my own theological pilgrimage uh, all all around um, Orthodox Christianity. When I I stopped being a pastor in 2008, moved to Washington, D.C., boy, I thought this is the first time in my life I get to attend a liberal Methodist church on a Sunday morning. And then I did. I, I went to a liberal Methodist church in Chicago, Illinois, and, and heard them on Mother's Day reciting something about our mother God. And I, immediately, I'm bristling. I'm like, this isn't who I am. But, but, I, but I, saw, I saw it there, and I, and I recognize, I don't, know if, I don't know if that's, this isn't orthodox. Uh, God isn't mother. Um, but I left. I went to a, a conservative Presbyterian church where they baptized babies. I attended a Methodist and, and at AME churches and Seventh-day Adventist church, actually just down the street from where I live in Washington, D.C. I read scripture for, I, I think it was almost three years at a Saturday morning mass at St. Matthew's Cathedral here in, in Washington, D.C. Um, I got criticized for that by some Baptists. In fact, one day I was sitting in my office on Capitol Hill and, and my phone rang and I answered and it was Paige Patterson on the phone. And he said, Ben, this is Paige Patterson. And I said, uh, Dr. Patterson, okay, what can I do for you? He said, I owe you an apology. I've told everybody you swam the Tiber. 
And I, I just said, I said, Paige, you know, I want you to just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Don't worry about me. I want nothing to do with you. I want you to have nothing to do with me. Just leave me alone. And I hung up the phone. That was the last conversation uh, we've ever had. But yeah, I was reading scripture in the Catholic church. And you know what? I showed up every morning at eight o'clock to read whatever the, le- whatever the scripture for the day was for the 10 people and, and four nuns who were gathered at the Cathedral uh, of St. Matthew here in Washington, D.C. And you know what? That, that kept me in the faith. Uh, that discipline of just reading scripture out loud in church, it, it, it was, a, it was a, a chord that kept, that kept me close. It kept me in the faith, quite frankly. Scripture did its work, right, in my own soul. Uh, during that season, but but I was able to move in and out of a, of a wide range of Christian expressions uh, during that season, and after a period of time of, of that sojourn, I realized, wait a minute, I, I am Southern Baptist. That's who I am. I'm not ashamed to say it. Uh, this is this is my family. This is the rock from which I've been hewn, and and I feel com- I feel committed to it, and I and I I want. I want to see the convention do right. But okay. so here's, but here's the thing. There's a difference in saying, I want to see the Southern Baptist convention do right. And saying, I want to see the convention believe right. So much of what's going on is, is just a fight over words. But doing right is about justice. And there's something I can't get away from. And that is, what does the Lord require of me? He does not require of me that I sign the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. The Lord does not require of me that I affirm the Danvers Statement. The Lord does not require of me that I affirm the Nashville Statement. None of these things are what the Lord requires of me. What does the Lord require of me? He requires of me to do justice, right? To love mercy and to walk humbly. The first one is do justice. And I think there's a growing number of of Southern Baptists who have come of age in the post-resurgence era, who actually believe that. And that is creating hell for the folks that were never really concerned about doing justly. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I grew up taking very seriously the idea that scripture is the authoritative word of God. And- It's the capital A authority. It is the authority, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think in some ways, uh, so having, having reiterated that I'm an inerrantist, I, there's, no, there's simply no denying that inerrancy is sometimes used as a pretext. And in fact, if you deny that inerrancy is sometimes used as a pretext, you're doing it. You're using it as a pretext, right? Uh, yeah, but, I, but I, I took that seriously, I think, from some who... Uh, meant it as a pretext, and they've been a bit surprised by uh, what's you know come about as a result. Me and people like me who, who took it seriously. So, uh, what do you what do you think about the upcoming convention? Thoughts, predictions? Um, what, what's your sense of things going in? I feel to some degree. Uh, I was I was just reading it the other day. I was I was reading in the Minor Prophet Joel, and. You know, Joel says he hears this sound in the distance, right? And it's the sound of an army that is gathering. 
And it ends up being an army of locusts, right? And the locusts come in and they devour. And after the locusts come the worms. And until, I mean, they, they just have fed through everything. And then there comes this promise, right? In, in Joel chapter two, that says, I'll rest, God promises or he said, I will restore the years which the locusts have eaten. And to some degree, I think this coming convention is a conflagration of all the locusts from the last 40 years. They, they are, they, they are going to sweep through this convention and we're going to walk away a little beaten, a little, a little marred, uh, a lot leaner and, and probably broken. That, I kind of hope we do walk away that way. But but the Lord can restore those years. And I, and I think to some degree, there are folks that left the Southern Baptist Convention recently. There are those who left in the 80s. There are those who left in the 90s. People have been leaving for 40 years for one reason or the other, whether it was a statement on the priesthood of the believer, the statement on ordination of women in 84, it was the 98 statement of faith, or it was, or it was whatever it was. There's always been an excess. I mean, I think Jimmy Carter's left the convention five times. But I, I wonder if on the other side of this year's uh, convention, is it possible that there's a reunion on the horizon? Um, and I don't want to just sit like, you know, it's like I'm old enough to be sitting like an old man on the front porch talking about, you know, these wistful days. But, but what do I think is going to come? You know, let me put on my, my an analyst hat for a second. Um, it's anybody's guess what happens with the, with the presidential race. And, and I think largely it doesn't matter. Um, if Mike Stone is elected or if or Val Mueller's elected, the fact is there's still another year of J.D. Greer's trustees that are coming down the pike next year. And, and one year of a convention presidency is not going to somehow destroy everything that's happened. Uh, it may create more conflict in the future, but that's okay. And Southern Baptist is not a war averse to conflict. And I don't think for a second, if Mike Stone is elected president, he's going to appoint knuckle-dragging, club-swinging, uh, unashamed misogynists to the various boards and agencies of the convention. Like, it is, it's not the doomsday scenario that some of the anti-Mike Stone crowd are articulating. Uh, if, if Al Mohler uh, is elected president, um, I mean, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a shrug. It's like, okay, well, he's wanted this his whole life and he got it and, you know, he will do fine. Uh, Al, Al Mohler sort of has taken a Hippocratic oath, I suppose, when it comes to the denomination. Uh, I don't think he wants to do harm. If, I don't think there's a chance Randy Adams is elected, but I appreciate his candidacy because I think he's carved out uh, some, some issues and topics that I think need to be talked about. And as far as Ed Litton, uh, he's got great appeal across the convention because he's just a pastor who's been doing the hard work for a long time in a local church. And, and he manages, I'll just say it, he manages not to piss people off, right? There's something to be said for a leader who doesn't just piss people off. And Ed Litton seems to be that kind of guy. Um, so what happened in the presidential race? I don't know, but I've told, I've been on 
the phone uh, this morning with reporters for five major national publications. And I myself will be, will be writing for one conservative publication uh, during the convention. And I'm telling everybody the same thing. You wanna be there when the first gavel falls Tuesday morning. The first thing to do is convene the convention. There could be a challenge to seating messengers, we'll see. Uh, when the introduction, of, when, when it comes to adopt the order of business, people have been texting and emailing me saying, Ben, is this motion in order or that motion in order to revise the, the proposed order of business? Some people are calling for, uh, to create a time for open question and answering of various trustee boards, which is totally in order if the convention wants to do that. Um, but all that happens very early on. And then the introduction of new business. And I, I mean, I've been going to these conventions. My first one was in 1995. Uh, my, my most recent, I was at the 2019 convention. Before that, I was at 2014. So I, I, I think I've been to, I don't know, 17 or 18 conventions. I don't know what, what the number is actually. But in those early moments, you kind of get a sense of where the room is. Uh, who's there? Who's at the microphone? What are the motions that they're making? Um, and this is the first time I talked with, with my pastor uh, last night. I talked with, with two denominational executives uh, today. And everyone's saying, uh, this is the first year in a long time. We have no idea what's going to happen. and don't really care um, because there's this sense of when all the furor and all the fur um, settles at the floor, everybody goes back to their church and for 363 days, they will do what they were called to do. And that's kind of one of the things I still love about being Southern Baptist. We kind of, we bring the pimple to a head two days a year and pop it, and then you go back, go back to the field to work. And that's, that, that's probably what's gonna happen this year. It's a, it is a lot of sound and fury, but pastors just return to their churches and lay people go back to their jobs, and it doesn't make that much of a difference. And this is kind of what you said earlier. The rest of the world is interested in the Southern Baptist Convention only in so far as it is they get through the first two paragraphs of the story in their local paper. They don't really care. And the fact that this convention means so much to some people doesn't really say much about the convention. It just says that they have uh, an unbalanced view of the kingdom of God, uh, the work of the church in the world, and I think their eschatology is seriously screwed up. I think if Southern Baptist got back to a sense of God's on the throne and he's working it out and our job is to be faithful, um, we'd all be better off. But that's, that's pie in the sky. In the meantime, let me, let me not, let me not uh, allow this conversation to end without being very, very clear. I intend to fight like hell for the things I believe in. And I intend to use every parliamentary procedural move to accomplish the things that I believe in. And I think there are some who would, who would agree that uh, I know how to do just that. I've done it. I've done it in the past. Some of the things that are very controversial at this coming convention are, are dominoes falling that, that I set up two years ago, three years ago. So I, I've always been playing the long game in Southern Baptist life. 
Um, and I intend to continue doing so. And we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but all that said, I'm looking forward to see it. I mean, part, everybody always says the best part of the convention is you go and you see, you see guys that you've known for a long time. The, the way we met each other, C.B. Scott, uh, he's going to be at the convention. C.B. is the best friend I've ever had. And he's one of those guys that's like the real deal. He's one of the ones that when you meet, he's like, yeah, I want to be a part of whatever this guy's a part of. Because uh, he really loves the Lord and believes the Bible and wants to do right. There's nobody that's done any more to rescue you know, kids from abusive homes than C.B. Scott has. He'll be there. So getting the convention is a chance to see folks like that, friends, even to see some enemies, you know, people that aren't really your enemy, but you've been fighting and sparring on Twitter for the last three, for in this case, for the last two years, and you haven't seen each other face to face. And it's interesting to see how all that kind of, all that kind of subsides for a minute. Yeah. Are I you going to be there, Scott? Are you going to be there? Or will you be a messenger from your church? Am I going to be at the convention? That's not the first time I've gotten that question. I'm afraid I can't. I'm afraid I won't be able to make it. <laughs> My dance card is full, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, Scott, I, I don't know if this, I, I hope this has been an interesting conversation for you. It certainly has been for me. I, I, am, I am stimulated by your thinking and um, challenged by a lot of what you're writing. I, I think that... Um, I think that the work that you're doing is noble work and uh, it's, it really is. I mean, I, I never thought I'd be in this. You never anticipate what you're going to feel like as you, as you advance in age, but I, you know, I just hit 40, I'm in my 45th year and it's interesting to be sitting, talking to somebody who was just a kid when you met him and, and you're learning from him. And I just think, I think that's beautiful. And so in as much as you take that as a, both a personal and professional uh, affirmation, I hope you receive it uh, that way. Well, thank you very much, man. I, I appreciate that. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It has, it has been fruitful, interesting, and enjoyable. Thank you. Well, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. <laughs> right, right. I'm not sure you want any parts of uh, that, but you know. Yeah. Please, uh, please, uh, say hello and give my love to your wife and um and your little boy and i hope to i hope to see y'all soon all right likewise take Take care care.